Welcome to The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and today's episode is called Sculpting the Planet. We have three different stories for you that you may not have ever heard much about, and all three of these are about times when people, just regular, ordinary, 170-pound on average people, reshaped the face of planet Earth. These were times when people permanently altered Earth's topography in major ways. Act one is called Slicing the Continents Apart. For most of us, when we think of the Panama Canal, we think of the United States and of Theodore Roosevelt. But that is not the beginning of the story. The first time anyone ever decided to try to dig a canal through Panama was about 400 years before all of that. Charles V was king of Spain, and he was also the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And a great deal of Charles's wealth came from what they called at that time the New World. Fleets of ships would sail from Spain all the way down around the southern tip of Latin America, and they would go up around the west coast there to what we now call Peru and Ecuador, there along the western coast of Latin America. And they would load up with thousands of tons of gold and silver, billions of dollars worth of these precious metals. And then the ships would turn around. They would sail all the way back down and cross under that southern tip again, which uh, is modern-day Argentina and Chile there. And then they would cross the mighty Atlantic and finally bring all that gold and silver back to Spain to Charles V. Charles used all of that wealth to pay for his war against the Ottoman Empire, and he also used it to help to finance the Catholic Church's inquisitions, uh, where the, the Catholics were trying to stamp out every vestige of religion besides Catholicism from all of Europe. Well, the system was working out all right for Charles, but in the 1520s, he began to get really annoyed by how long it took for his ships to make these voyages halfway around the world. It took months and months, and he wanted to shorten that trip so that he could get richer quicker, so that he could finance those important wars with greater expediency. Sailing around the southern tip of Latin America was also really dangerous. It was a region where both wind and wave just delighted in demolishing ships on ice and rocks. So Charles studied the map, And he saw that teensy, skinny little sliver of land that connects North America to South America. And he said, hey, let's just slice through that that skinny little slender place there. And that way, ships would have a much shorter voyage to make and they could avoid those perilous waters uh, on the southern tip of, of the continent. So Charles ordered his men to conduct feasibility studies for that project, and several of his leading navigators and engineers and conquistadors spent a lot of time studying the isthmus of Panama and surveying where the best place to dig would be. All kinds of various routes were proposed, but ultimately, they all decided that the task of slicing apart the continents was too much for them, and all of the plans were abandoned. Well, no one thought too much about trying to dig through Panama for over 100 years after that. 
But then in the 1690s, the Isthmus started to look very interesting to the Kingdom of Scotland. Scotland at this time was an independent nation, and the Scottish saw that other countries, such as France and Portugal and Spain and England, they were all expanding their empires by colonizing different places all over the world. Scotland didn't want to be left behind by this trend of colonization, so the Scots decided to try to establish a colony of their own in Panama. They gathered up about one-fifth of the country's wealth, and 2,500 brave Scotsmen, and they sailed it all to Panama. They called it New Caledonia. But it didn't take the Scots long to see that their plan had some problems. The mountains, especially on Panama's western side, were much steeper than they expected them to be. So whether they wanted to build an overland trade route or try to dig through uh, and build a canal there, the topography was just too much for what they were able to accomplish. So two years and 2,000 dead Scotsmen later, the project was abandoned. This unsuccessful attempt actually ended up plunging Scotland into such severe financial trouble that the Scots entered into a union with their neighbor, the Kingdom of Britain. The purpose of the union was to stabilize Scotland after they had lost so much in that failed Panama venture. And that was when the independent, sovereign state of Scotland lost its autonomy. Ever since its failure in Panama, it has been a part of the United Kingdom. Well, all was quiet on the Panamanian front for another hundred years or so, until the early 1800s. At that time, a German explorer named Alexander von Humboldt set his sights on that skinny, slender little slice of land. Von Humboldt successfully mapped out plans for several different routes through Panama and some other regions there in Central America. And these plans were much more detailed than anything produced by Charles V's men. But ultimately, those designs and the disunited Germans' interest in the Panama endeavor came to nothing just as had happened with the Scots before them and the Spanish before them. Well, another 80 years or so went by, and then the French decided it was their turn to take on Panama. The French had recently had a lot of success with the Suez Canal there in Egypt, so they decided, why not Panama too? They talked to Ferdinand de Lesseps, a Frenchman who had been in charge of the Suez Project, and they told him to rechannel all of his canal-digging expertise toward the Panama Project. So in 1881, after much deliberation and planning, the French arrived in Panama, and they did something that no one else up to that point had done. They actually started digging. The French had a massive labor force of about 40,000 men, although most of these were from the Caribbean and the West Indies. And the French had hundreds of engineers, 
on site and all kinds of money to pour into this project. The French really invested a lot into it. They gave the project their best. But Panama was not Suez. The construction of the Suez Canal had been basically digging a ditch through flat, sandy desert. But Panama was totally different. There were mountains as high as 360 feet tall, and a lot of it was solid rock. A lot of it was volcano-studded terrain. And there were also all kinds of rivers that presented many unexpected complications. And the most serious problem of all was tropical disease. Malaria, yellow fever, and others. No one at this time knew much about how these terrible diseases spread, so they just kept killing off more and more of the workers. In fact, one common hospital technique was to set all four legs of a patient's hospital bed in a little tin of water. They did this so that the jungle bugs and worms could not crawl up the legs of the beds and onto the patients. But these tins of water were perfect breeding grounds for mosquitoes, which carried malaria and yellow fever. So mosquitoes would breed rapidly right inside the hospitals, virtually ensuring that everyone in the hospitals would soon get those mosquito-borne diseases and die. Well, the French kept at this project for about eight years. By 1889, the French had spent the modern equivalent of $6 billion on the Panama Project, and they had dug about two-fifths of the canal. But they were facing frequent floods and mudslides, and the death toll kept increasing. By that time, 22,000 men had been killed either by diseases or by the very dangerous working conditions. And all of these complications caused the project to go bankrupt. So the French quit. They pulled out and rode off the Panama Canal as an embarrassing failure. But then, in 1904, after all those unsuccessful plans by the Spanish the Scots, the Germans, and the French, the United States entered the picture. Under President Theodore Roosevelt, the United States paid France $40 million for its equipment and its excavations. The U.S. also paid Panama an initial payment of $10 million. And then, long before the Americans started any actual digging, they built a railroad all the way across the isthmus, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. The rail company also found a way to safely rid the project sites of the corpses of workers who died while working on it. The company would actually pickle the bodies in brine and sell them as cadavers to medical schools all over the world. And it ended up being a significant source of income for the whole Panama project. Well, before the Americans could start digging, they also had to stir up a revolution that tore Panama away from Colombia. And then a British doctor finally discovered that mosquitoes were the source of those diseases they were all getting. So they figured out a way to wage war on the mosquitoes and reduce the, uh, the infection rates. Then, finally, 
With these obstacles surmounted, the U.S. began to dig the big ditch, the Panama Canal. About 10 years later, in 1914, after spending hundreds of millions of dollars going through three chief engineers and losing over 5,000 lives, the United States had removed enough dirt to bury all of Manhattan to a depth of 12 feet. The Americans had completed the Panama Canal. It was 51 miles long. It chopped the travel time in half for many major trade routes. It saved about 8,000 miles of travel time for some of the largest shipping routes. It was a great boon to the American economy and the global economy, too. Everyone benefits from it, really. And it was a huge boost for American morale. For centuries... World powers had tried to cut through North and South America. They'd tried to dig the Panama Canal through that that isthmus there. But only the United States, under Theodore Roosevelt, was able to accomplish this mammoth task of slicing the continents apart. That's why the Panama Canal is one of the seven wonders of the modern world. When we come back, we'll learn about two other times when mere mortal men reshaped the face of planet Earth. You're listening to The Sun Also Rises on KPCG, 101.3 on the FM dial here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and the live stream is available at kpcg.fm. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG. If you'd like to email the program, send those comments and questions our way by emailing tsar at kpcg.fm. Well, in the first half, we talked about what a momentous achievement it was to dig the Panama Canal and how many failed attempts were made before it was finally accomplished by extraordinary American metal and determination. And now for Act 2 of this episode, I'd like to talk about the determination and ingenuity of another nation, which was used to sculpt the planet in a different way. And that is the Netherlands. The Netherlands is not a huge country, but it is the fifth largest nation in the Eurozone, and its area is actually more than 16,000 square miles. So that's quite a lot of land. But the fascinating thing is that an amazing amount of the Netherlands land, thousands of square miles of it, has not always been there. For more than 2,000 years, the people that we now know as the Dutch and those that may have lived there before them have been waging a war and claiming more and more land from this war. It's not a war against another nation or a group of people. They have not been taking land from the Germans or the Belgians or any of their other neighbors. The Dutch have been waging a war against the North Sea. Starting all the way back in the year 400 BCE, 
People in what we now call the Netherlands began building elevated mounds of dirt. They called these turpins. And they would build their houses and villages on them. And by building on top of these mounds, their homes could be out of reach from the sea, even in the event of flooding. And the people also built dikes, which are barriers or walls. And these dikes keep water from being able to come in and flood their their homes, their villages, their farms. So that was a long time ago. And for the first several hundred years of this battle against the ocean, the gains were very small. It was just a few feet of land at a time. But they were stealing land away from the icy waters of the North Sea. They were winning that war one square foot at a time and expanding the size of their livable territory. Well, as the centuries went by, the people kept on fighting the sea back further and further. But then in the year 1287, on December 14th of that year, the dikes failed. They started breaking apart and that icy water started pouring in. The water flooded in so quickly that many people didn't have time to evacuate. Historians estimate that more than 50,000 people were killed in that terrible flooding. And it's considered to be one of the very worst floods in all of history. It's called the St. Lucia Flood or St. Lucia's Flood. Well, the Dutch are a strong and resolute people, and they did not allow this terrible flood to convince them to give up their war against the North Sea. Over the next few centuries, they worked even harder to push the water back out of the area that had been resubmerged by St. Lucia's flood. And before too long, they began devising some more sophisticated methods to deal with this problem and to wage this war. Their dikes were getting stronger and better, and by the end of the 13th century, they started using canals and even pumps to drain land. After they had built dikes around it, they could use these pumps and canals to drain the water off of it and to keep that land dry. So once it was dry, they would build homes and farms on this land, and they could live more comfortable, more abundant lives. The way the pumps worked was from harnessing the power of the wind. I think it's really interesting that in order to fight back against one aspect of nature, the waters of the sea, they used the power from another aspect of nature, the wind. So the people of the Netherlands built hundreds and hundreds of windmills, and as the wind turned their blades around, they would be pumping water out of where they didn't want it and into the canals or the sea. And as the years went by, the, the resolute and inventive Dutch people became more and more sophisticated in their methods of fighting back the sea and keeping it off of their land. After electricity came along, most of the windmills were replaced with electric pumps. And many of the dikes now also include electricity-driven or diesel-driven components. There have been more floods, but the Dutch are now better prepared for them. Every time one comes, they're a little better prepared for it. And today, there are more than 1,500 miles of dikes in the Netherlands. And about 
of the Netherlands land is territory that was once under the sea. It's more than 4,000 square miles of land that these determined people stole from the ocean, converting it into valuable, livable land and freshwater lakes in some cases. And 60% of the people in the country actually live on land that used to be underwater. And by fighting the sea back and claiming and reclaiming so much land from it, the Dutch really have re-sculpted the face of the earth in an exceptional and truly dramatic way. The final act of this episode is called A Tireless Task. It begins in 332 BCE when Alexander the Great was on his blitzkrieg campaign of conquest in the Middle East. Alexander conquered Ephesus and then Baalbek then Aleppo, and every place he conquered, he would push the influence of the old Persian Empire out and extend the Greek Empire into that area. He was rapidly expanding the size of that mighty Greek Empire. Well, eventually, Alexander came to the Phoenician territories, which are part of modern-day Lebanon, and he conquered the city of Sidon there in the mainland, and then he set his sights on the city of Tyre. Tyre was one of the main naval bases of the Persian Empire, so Alexander knew he absolutely had to conquer it in order to defeat the Persians and stamp out their influence. But there was a problem. Tyre was an island city. It was not connected to the rest of that Phoenician territory that we now call Lebanon. It was actually more than half a mile off of the coast, And it was really tough for Alexander to get his army out there. But he was absolutely determined to take the city, so he decided to build a dam or land bridge out to this island city. He told his soldiers to collect stone and wood and any rubble they could find from the cities that they had destroyed on the mainland and to use all of that material to build this causeway or land bridge out to the island. Well, he and his soldiers gathered up all they could, and they started little by little to throw all of this material into the water to make this land bridge out to the island of Tyre. They kept at it for a week, and then a month, and then two months, and then three. And the water was quite shallow there, maybe only 10 or 20 feet deep in some places, but it still required an astounding amount of material to make this land bridge more than half a mile long. It was about 0.6 miles long. But after seven months of building, the land bridge was complete. Alexander had connected the island of Tyre to the mainland. It was not a pretty bridge by any means. It it had literally been thrown together. It was made of chunks of broken stone and wood, and parts of it were still a little bit submerged beneath the water, but it was enough to serve Alexander's purpose. His massive army rode and marched over it. They charged across this primitive bridge, and they quickly conquered the city of Tyre. Well, we know that 
Alexander's Greek empire did not stand the test of time. After his death, it fractured, and eventually it fell. But this land bridge that he made did stand the test of time. Over the centuries, the rubble that his army threw into the water began to collect sediment. And that sediment started collecting more sediment. And it ended up irreversibly altering the flow of water surrounding the island. And within a few hundred years, the land naturally filled in and permanently linked the island of Tyre to the mainland. And that's why if you look at a map of the Middle East today, Tyre is not an island. It's just a part of uh, the southern part of Lebanon there. And if you didn't know about this history, you'd have no reason not to think that the city had always been part of the mainland. An amazing 7.1 million square feet of new land were created, producing the broad peninsula that we see there today. So Alexander the Great really did re-sculpt and reshape the topography of planet Earth in a significant way. The maps have all had to be redrawn to reflect the changes to the Middle East's basic topography and geography that he made. So there we have three accounts of men, just regular, mortal men, reshaping the face of planet Earth, permanently altering Earth's topography in major ways. Well, we really appreciate your listening to The Sun Also Rises today, and we hope that you'll send us your feedback and comments to tsar at kpcg.fm. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. That'll help other people to find this podcast. I would like to thank the KPCG operations manager, Mr. Dwight Falk, and the production assistant, Abraham Blondeau. And I'll leave you with these words from Theodore Roosevelt. A finer body of men has never been gathered by any nation than the men who have done the work of building the Panama Canal. They have all felt an eager pride in their work, and they have made not only America, but the whole world their debtors by what they have accomplished. Well, thank you again for listening, and please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of The Sun Also Rises. (laughs) 